Right? According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me in uh, Exodus chapter 22. We covered the first 15 verses of chapter 22 uh, in day, the day 40 material. This class is for day 41, the February 10th reading in the Through the Bible calendar. Laws, Festivals, and a Covenant is the title that Ron Rhodes gave to this. Uh, we're going to cover chapter 22, 23, and 24 here tonight. All right, before we do get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon our Father and His faithfulness to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight thankful for your grace and faithfulness. Thankful for all of your faithfulness, Father. We had a technology glitch, but you worked it out. We thank you for that. We continue to call upon you uh, every time we assemble, Father, to keep, keep electricity in the building, keep the lights on, keep the internet connected, keep YouTube from kicking us off. Everything else that's going on, Father, we just uh, thank you for brothers and sisters that are coming together to be fed. I thank you for our reading schedule. I thank you for this format, Father, and for the intensity of studying to show ourselves approved seven times a week for 52 weeks of this calendar year. We give you the praise and the glory now tonight for, uh, for the truth that's set before us. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we teased this uh, on Sunday that uh, we're going to start with seduction. Exodus twenty two sixteen. If a man seduces a virgin who is not engaged and lies with her, he must pay a dowry for her to be his wife. All right, so this is, you, you're all on the edge of your seat from Sunday, Monday to Tuesday, waiting to, waiting to come back to class tonight. So here we are. Um, continuing the outline from chapter 22, this is Mosaic Law. Remember where we are. Uh, Israel is at Mount Sinai. They've been, they've been delivered out of Egypt. They've come through the Red Sea. They've had a couple failures already in the wilderness, just in between the Red Sea and Mount Sinai. So here they are now and uh, ready to uh, receive these instructions. Moses has already laid the preliminary law before them and they signed up for it and said, you know, we'll do that. And now he's going back up the mountain and he's getting additional material. And uh, so we're in this section here. All right, so uh, chapter 22 and verse 16, really verses 16 and 17 together. Um, what happens here for the remainder of this chapter verses 16 through 31, the remainder of this chapter contains a variety of other social laws designed to provide stability to a society. The first 15 verses were really about property, property crimes, theft, forms of theft that, uh, that aren't actually you know what we think of in terms of theft, but arson is theft and other things are theft, borrowing and not returning or damage that's done. There's all kinds of things that uh, those first 15 verses went into. And really, 16 and 17 kind of forms a bridge because while it's uncomfortable to, to think about, in the ancient world, marriage is a property crime, okay? Or violating laws of marriage is a property issue. Your daughter's virginity is a property issue uh, until such time as you uh, arrange for that marriage and you give your daughter to a man who, who becomes her husband and then the, her virginity status is public record uh, for you, for your family, for your clan, for your tribe, for the whole village, has a vested interest in men and women alike, the boys and girls, the sons that are given to, and the daughters that are given. It works, uh, it works both ways as we deal with this. All right, so we have public issues. And really verses 16 and 17 is a bridge uh, because what follows afterwards are societal issues that have to be addressed, including the things that we'll get to with sorcery and bestiality and, I mean, just all kinds of stuff that, that comes in this chapter. So let's pick it up here with uh, the premarital sex, all right? With a lot of the things in Mosaic Law, um, violating the Sabbath, um, sorcery, there's a lot of things in Mosaic Law where the penalty is death. The punishment is death, usually death by stoning. Sometimes there's other execution methods that are given. Well, the penalty for premarital sex is not death. It's a fate worse than death. No, I'm teasing. The uh, premarital sex is punishable by marriage. 
All right? And when I say punishable, what I mean is the judicial consequence. The judicial consequence, okay, is marriage. And so we see it here. Verse 16 and 17. If a man seduces a virgin who is not engaged and lies with her, he must pay a dowry for her to be his wife. If her father absolutely refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the dowry for virgins. So he's going to pay either way. He's either going to pay the full dowry and take her as a wife, or if the father refuses, then this kid is still out the money, right? I say kid, we don't know how old the man is, but any man that has uh, engaged in this premarital sex apart from, you know, marriage, um, he's going to pay that dowry one way or the other, either with the marriage or without the marriage, okay? And that's the father's call to make in this culture, under the, the system that God established for, mar- for uh, volition, marriage, family, and nationalism. Okay? This is still in the, in the early eras of the, of the biblical record. This is still in the design, as God designed it in Genesis, for volition, marriage, family, and nations. Alright, so, uh, and, and I, I recognize we're, this is not our culture anymore. We're, we're beyond the point now where we have arranged marriages, at least in our nation. Still in many places around the country, around the world, I worked with a man who was from Nigeria and he had an arranged marriage and, and he learned, he met her on his wedding day and he learned to love her and they had six kids and, and I guess, you know, he learned to love her. And he testifies it was the best decision his dad ever made was the, the bride that he selected for him in that arranged marriage. All right. So the marriage was subject to the father's consent. You know, he may have had other reasons to uh, to allow it, may have had other reasons to disallow it, depending on other factors, okay? And this is where the father has to have the objectivity to consider who the man is, what his income is like, what his career is, what his family and clan and tribe are, because remember, this is connecting families, clans, and tribes. And if, uh, you know, if this, this uh, man is not such as is pleasing to the father's design for what he wants his family, clan, and tribe to be connected to, then he may flat out veto it in, uh, in that circumstance. But the dowry is payable regardless. Uh, there is no permitted divorce for such marriages, all right? So this is like uh, when you get a life sentence without uh, the possibility of parole, okay, in a criminal sense, this is like a life marriage without the possibility of divorce, okay? So we keep in mind when we, when we get married and we take our vows before God and we say, till death us do part, we say that, we vow that, and we probably mean that at the time that we're saying it, but years later when we do divorce, what are we doing? Not, not we, when a person divorces, what are they doing? They are breaking the vow that they had previously made before God and before many witnesses, all right? And they're probably also doing it before a secular judge who is of no account to the church, all right? So they're actually violating a lot of different scriptures in that, in that application. Deuteronomy 22.29 says, um, the man who lay with her shall give to the girl's father 50 shekels of silver. She shall become his wife because he has violated her and he cannot divorce her all his days. And so this is marriage without the possibility of divorce. All right. And so, you know, as a, as an influence, as a motivation, uh, for not canoodling before, before marriage, I mean, that's the, uh, you got to stop and think th- these things through, okay? And uh, that's the the issue there. All right. On to the next issue, eighteen and nineteen. Sorcery punishable by death. You shall not allow a sorceress to live. Now, by the way, there is also um, a change. Everything up through verse seventeen is kind of talking about if this, then that, if there is a this, then there's a that. It's, it's, it's a different language that's used, okay? If a man gives his neighbor a donkey, you know, so it's, it's kind of hypothetical situations. It's, it's, it's phrased in a certain way, and there's a technical term for it in the Hebrew that I'm not re- thinking about right now, so um, I'll stop that. But then when we get to verse 18, the language changes, and you can notice it in the English, and there's another technical term for it in the Hebrew, but it's thou shalt not, right? You shall not, you shall not, you shall not. Don't do this, don't do this. 
you shall not allow a sorceress to live. Okay? Which is different from don't practice sorcery. Okay? Don't be a sorceress. Don't, don't, uh, you know, don't practice sorcery. Don't allow a sorceress to live. That's a, that, you see that how forceful that is? You don't even allow them to live. So what's the penalty for that? Well, it's not really a penalty for being a sorceress, but it's, a, it's an obedience for the culture that doesn't allow a sorceress to live. You see the difference? It's powerful. Then uh, bestiality, whoever, or bestiality, whoever lies with an animal shall surely be put to death. Okay? That's not saying don't fornicate with an animal. It's saying don't let them live. Whoever does this is put to death. He who sacrifices to any god other than to the Lord alone shall be utterly destroyed. So sorcery, bestiality, worship of uh, any false god, punishable by death. Now, this is a law that's again given to the Jewish people in, in Mosaic law. They are the covenant nation. They are the theocracy that God established. Uh, would, would a passage like this be adapted for any other country, for a Gentile country, a country that's not the covenant nation theocracy on earth? All right. So case in point, America with our first amendment and the freedom of religion that we have, whereby we permit uh, you know, Muslims to be Muslim and Buddhists to be Buddhist and Hindus to be Hindus. And, uh, and so they're worshiping Allah and they're worshiping whoever. We don't execute them for worshiping a God other than Yahweh, Elohim, right? That uh, they are free to do that because of the way this nation was, was founded. All right. Mistreatment of strangers, widows, and orphans was prohibited and, and subject to divine discipline for punishment. So let's get a look at verses 21 through 24 here. And whereas we had um, sorceresses and idolatry and bestiality, we had, it was just bing, 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 one verse, one verse, one verse, just simple statements. This one is drawn out. This one is a longer development. You shall not wrong a stranger or oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall not afflict any widow or orphan if you afflict him at all. And if he does cry out to me, I will surely hear his cry. Remember when the blood was crying out from the ground, when, when Cain murdered Abel and he buried Abel and he, he tried to cover his tracks there, and the blood was crying out to the ground? There's certain things. Uh, it's like uh, you know, praying to the Lord. First of all, you never get a busy signal. Even if a billion Christians are praying simultaneously, we all get through, and it's marvelous. But there are some things that get through faster than others. It's like the bat phone or a hotline or some kind of a, a, a connection that is so fast to God's throne room. Mistreating a widow or an orphan, gets, that gets through to God's attention quicker than anything. It gets front, front and center stage. I will surely hear his cry and my anger will be kindled. God is normally slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. But in this situation, when a widow or an orphan is crying out because of the abuse... You know, that's, that's a trigger. And God's telling us this up front. My anger will be kindled. I will kill you with a sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. Does that seem, ooh, that seems cruel and unusual punishment. But notice, it's like for like in kind. It's a phrase I, I stole from Arnold Fruchtenbaum. Like for like in kind. You were afflicting a widow or an orphan and so what's the consequence with your wife and your children being widowed and orphaned? Okay. Anyway, the, uh, the consequence there. Mistreatment of strangers, widows, and orphans. Prohibited and subject to divine discipline for punishment. And it's, it's kind of, it's curious too, is that um, with some of these, I will kill you with a sword. It's not as if it's going to go to a judicial proceeding or that there's going to be a trial or that there's, um, that, you know, evidence is going to be submitted or, and God has direct hands on for this application. I'm going to do this, he says. All right. Uh, there's also Exodus 23, 9 that, correlates with this quite well. You shall not oppress a stranger, since you yourselves know the feelings of a stranger. You also were strangers in the land of Egypt.
All right, so yeah, very much a sojourner. Somebody that doesn't belong there but is living there for now. So why would they want to live there for now? Well, you know, with other nations, Gentile nations, it might be because of economic reasons. It might be because of safety. It might be because of whatever. The Roman Empire had a lot of barbarians that wanted to live in the Roman Empire because there was culture, there was stability, there was law, there was civilization. There was, I mean, who wouldn't want to live in the Roman Empire compared to the barbarian lands beyond there? All right. But the covenant nation, the theocracy, the people of God that had God's truth, a, uh, they weren't going there for the climate. They weren't going there for the, you know, for the food or whatever. They're going there because they love the Lord and that's where truth can be found. In a lot of cases, God-fearing Gentiles. Think about Ruth. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. The, the primary motivation for immigrating to ancient Israel was that's where God lives. He dwells in their midst. And that's where truth can be found. So anyway, I, I expect that uh, the treatment towards strangers is for you know, Gentile believers that are positive to Bible doctrine. You want to you know, treat them accordingly. All right, verses 25 through 27, if you lend money to my people, to the poor among you. Now, it might seem like this chapter is kind of scatterbrained, that it's bouncing from topic to topic to topic, but really every issue that's being addressed here is an issue of either instability or stability within your culture. That things that can, you know, drive chaos or things that can generate stability. All right, personal loans, verses 25 through 27. Conducted on the basis of grace, no interest applied, and pledges could not result in personal injury. So if you lend money to my people, to the poor among you, and and this is, of course, beyond the fact that, that they're already dealing with families and clans and tribes, that it's going to be a family issue in your neighborhood because your neighbor is going to be related to you in some way. And then, uh, but beyond that is the, uh, the spiritual principles of what happens with debt, with poverty, what happens at the extreme end when, when somebody is sold into slavery. But then they have the duties of, of redemption. That's part of their covenant nature. That they're not just waiting, you know, rubbing their hands, waiting for somebody to go belly up so they can pounce in and devour on a, on a foreclosure or a bankruptcy deal. Uh, they actually have duties under the bankruptcy deals in the covenant responsibilities that they have with the, all of the inheritance rights in the, in the families and clans and, and tribes. And then the idea of loaning money, <clears throat> trying to make money on their misfortune. God was having none of that. So you're not to act as a creditor. You're a personal loan, but not a loan shark, right? It's a personal loan in grace. You're not a creditor. You're not a banker. This is not a commercial transaction. You are not to charge interest. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, you are to return it to him before the sun sets. If that is his only covering, it is his cloak for his body, what else shall he sleep in? So if that's the collateral you've collected, if that's the pledge you've taken, um, you know, you're free to take a collateral or take a pledge, that's fine, but if, it, if that pledge results in his personal harm, then give it back. Absolutely give it back. This is a grace transaction. What else shall he sleep in? It shall come about that when he cries out to me, I will hear him, for I am gracious. So that's another hotline to heaven in the, the lack of grace that's being bemoaned upon the person that was victimized by, by your failure to live up to grace. All right? So now, this is, again, this is Old Testament. This is, um, this is something that in the Christian era, they had to evaluate. And through the Middle Ages, they had to evaluate this. And, and, uh, and uh, they did a marvelous job at evaluating this in recognizing that um, as far as uh, living in the world and, and not of the world, but being Christians and not a theocracy. And this was the, the curious thing. They had to evaluate uh, what loans were like, what business was like. They had to evaluate whether interest is always bad, or whether um, there are situations where it's a, it's a positive thing, where you should expect a return on your investment, 
where, where multiple people coming together and contributing towards an endeavor, should they expect a gain for that? And they found in the New Testament, the teachings of Christ, yes, they should have a gain for that. So they had to balance, they had to reconcile Old Testament with New Testament, they had to reconcile law versus grace, they had to reconcile the Jewish theocracy in contrast with the, the neither Jew nor Gentile body of Christ. And it's marvelous that they came down to this, see? And it's kind of unique. The medieval Christianity was, was freer with um, investments and profit and income and capitalism and all this good stuff, whereas medieval uh, the medieval Jews had struggles longer than, than any other group, and the Muslims had issues because the Quran was pretty much just ripping off the, the Mosaic Law. And so they would not charge interest. The Jews would charge interest to the Goyim, but not to fellow Jews. And so you would have Jewish bankers making money on the Christians. Um, so this whole issue comes up. Okay, Now I'm on a rabbit trail. I told myself no rabbit trails this year. Get off that rabbit trail. Rabbit trails are next year. But this passage is, is a big part of what I'm talking about. Okay, This passage about lending money to, uh, to my people. All right. Not charging interest. All right. Get past that. 28 through 31. Almost to the end of the chapter here. You shall not curse God, nor curse a ruler of your people, neither God nor the king. Okay? God or the president. And, and you know, and, and this is a question. Okay? If, if it's, it's, it's amusing, it's hilarious, you can put on a hat, you know, let's go, Brandon. But are we? What are we doing? Okay? And, and honestly, we have to stand before the Lord and, and honestly say, I am not cursing. Okay? Besides, he himself said it, so he agreed with it. He said, let's go, Brandon, I agree. So it's not. I'm not cursing him in that point. Okay? Might be mocking him, but I'm not cursing him. Okay? Because I pray for him. Not shall not curse God nor curse a ruler of your people. Verbal abuse. This is what the cursing is. The verbal abuse, it's not profanity. It's not just a, an off-color word that's considered vulgar or or profane or obscene. Okay? And then there's a whole doctrine right there. What's the difference between obscene and vulgar and profane? Um, Regardless, the cursing, the imprecatory nature of the cursing, where we are calling for divine harm, that's invoking the Lord's name in vain. That's, that's one of the Decalogue. That's what we've already discussed back in chapter 20. Anyway, it is prohibited. It doesn't say what the consequence is. God himself deals with that, evidently. Verse 29, you shall not delay the offering from your harvest and your vintage. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. This is a verse that's hostile to procrastination. Procrastination with God's offerings is not tolerated. Don't delay. There's several things that aren't tolerated. In fact, paying your workers. Don't delay in paying your workers. Pay them at the end of the day for the day they did. Okay. Don't delay in, in your worship. Don't delay in what is due to the glory of God. So the offering from your harvest, it's first fruits. You know, don't be a procrastinator saying, well, it's not quite first fruits yet. You know, yeah, it is. And he gets the first fruits. And likewise, the firstborn of your sons. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. It shall be with its mother seven days, and on the eighth day you shall give it to me. The firstborn of man and beast belong to God. Finally then, you shall be holy. You shall be holy men to me. Therefore you shall not eat any flesh torn to pieces in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. Personal holiness is to include every area of the believer's life, including his diet. And here it's just a single verse. It's, it's, uh, it's just given in passing. We're, we're moving from one chapter to the next. It's a, it's a passing reference. But believe me, the book of Leviticus is coming up, and the whole issue of food takes chapters. All right, we got lengthy material centered on the dietary restrictions in Leviticus, so stay tuned for that. All right, chapter twenty-three: sundry laws. I like that. <laughs> All right, sundry laws. That's the Percopy heading. That's a, a publishing blurb that the Lockman Foundation put in there as the uh, publishers of the New American Standard Bible. 
assuming they haven't changed it yet. The, um, I have created a new parallel text here. If I can load it. There it is. Sundry laws, sundry laws, various laws. All right. So in the updated 2020 New American Standard Bible, I guess they decided sundry is uh, old-fashioned, so they're going with various laws. So yeah, this is my panorama of New American Standard Bible, from the original to the 1995 to the 2020, and it's kind of interesting to see some of the changes that, uh, that happen. All right, various laws. The various laws for society are continued. Verses 1 through 9 here of chapter 23. Starting with false witness in court. You shall not bear a false report. Do not join your hand with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. Okay. Now sometimes in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not bear false witness is kind of assumed to be strictly a judicial proceeding, but I don't think it is. I think that the truthfulness imperative of the, of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not lie, is is absolute in all cases other than the sanctioned ones of of uh, warfare or or espionage or whatnot. Generally speaking, let your yes be yes, let your no be no, and let no you know lie come out of your mouth. This passage, as opposed to the Ten Commandments in Exodus twenty, is uh, strictly in a um, judicial setting, bearing a false report, joining your hand with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. So where now you're in cahoots because it, in judicial proceedings everything has to be confirmed with two or three witnesses. So these are the kind of lies that require coordination with other liars, right? And you remember when when they couldn't find their, their, the, the the liars that were trying to get to lie about Jesus couldn't keep their story straight and they couldn't get a a single uh, conviction against Jesus because the liars were were contradicting each other in in that uh, malicious way. Also, verse 7 of this chapter deals with that. Keep far from a false charge. Do not kill the innocent or the righteous, for I will not acquit the guilty. Even if we succeed in a miscarriage of justice, the God of justice, uh, he knows the truth. And he's very involved in, uh, in these proceedings. Mob justice is prohibited. See, if you can't, uh, if you can't get... Um, you know, if you can't buy the jury off or if you can't taint the, the trial with false witnesses, uh, then maybe you can just scare them into doing what you want to be done if with street justice or some kind of mob action. Okay, So you shall not follow the masses in doing evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after a multitude in order to pervert justice. And so mob action on the street influencing the judicial proceedings, that's not good. God sees through that as well. Or just, you know, forget the trial. Let's just take justice into our own hands. Let's take care of it now. Who needs a judge? Who needs a court? Okay? That's the mob mentality, and that doesn't glorify Jesus Christ. He is establishing uh, judicial proceedings as a part of his covenant nation in the theocracy that is Israel. So mob justice prohibited. Partiality for or against a poor man in court is prohibited. You shall not be partial to a poor man in his dispute. It actually goes both directions. You can't side for the poor guy just because he's poor and say, oh, come on, who cares? The, the company's got deep pockets. They're not going to miss it. They're insured, whatever. You know, this is a chance for the little guy to, to, make some, to make some bucks, you know, or do whatever. Don't be partial to the poor man in his dispute. And uh, likewise, verse 6, you shall not pervert the justice due to your needy brother in his dispute, either for him or against him. Don't pervert the justice. The justice is what it is. It's an absolute standard. And, and it, it, it's supposed to be blind. Lady Justice is supposed to have the blind the, the thing over her eyes, so uh, it's supposed to be blind so she can't tell that uh, you know the circumstances on this, okay? Lost property is to be returned uninjured. Verses 4 and 5, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away. All right, now you come across a lost ox. Does it matter if it's your best buddy or your arch nemesis enemy, right? 
return the animal. It's not yours. Okay? You say, well, yeah, but this guy's a jerk. I hate him. It doesn't make a difference. Okay? The ownership of the, it doesn't matter. It's not yours. Return it to who, you know, who it belongs to. You shall surely return it to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying helpless under its load, <laughs> you know, don't giggle with glee. Don't, don't uh, have a thrill thinking, ha, you know, just because the owner hates you. I mean, that's not, is that the animal's fault? You know, the animal's struggling. The animal has needs. You shall refrain from leaving it to him. You shall surely release it with him. So uninjured, uh, restored in, uh, in good condition. Just um, This is part of loving your neighbor as yourself, right? Even if your neighbor hates you. That, that's uh, not a condition. It's an unconditional love. Love lo- the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Maybe this is God's grace uh, opening a door of opportunity to... Uh, to you know, reconcile with an enemy or turn an enemy into a friend or, or just do something that's so totally outrageous as a grace gift to somebody that hates your guts that they, uh, maybe they'll have something to think about biblically. Bribery is prohibited. Verse 8, you shall not take a bribe for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of the just. That's the thing. And, and you know, um, you know, we sometimes we say we have the best legal system that money can buy. That's a problem. Okay, it should not be for sale. It should not be two standards of justice with a politically connected and the politically unconnected. In some cases, money can't even buy it because you could be a billionaire and you're not in the club with the uh, the powers that be. And so, uh, different kind of bribery at that point. But it does. It blinds the clear-sighted. Money becomes a fog that that filters uh, what people look through and keeps them from seeing clearly. All right. Then there's again, you shall not oppress the stranger. We talked about that in chapter 22. Verses 10 and following. The principle of the Sabbath is amplified. Now we have the Sabbath doctrine already as part of the Ten Commandments, right? You shall keep the Sabbath. Well, now we have additional details given here in verses 10 through 13. Not just people. The land itself needs a rest. Okay? Not just people. Animals. Not just people and not just citizens, but slaves. So take a look at this. It says, verses 10 through 13, You shall sow in your land for six years and gather in its yield, but on the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow. So the Sabbath principle is not just a weekly principle of one day in a, in a week of seven days, but it's also an annual principle or a, in a septad, a septa-annual principle. Is that a word? It is now. In a septannual principle, that is in every seven-year block, there's six working years and one year of rest. One year of agricultural rest for the land. Okay? That's a septad. If you're not familiar with septads, uh, get used to it. Because we're, I mean, we're accustomed to decades, right? We talk about decades. We talk about the, you know, the 80s, the 90s. Those were the decades, right? Um, the Bible doesn't talk about decades. The Bible talks about septads. How, how interesting is that? All right. So in the seventh year, you shall let it rest and lie fallow. So, and this is provision. This is a cultural provision. It's agricultural, but it's also um, people cultural, right? Which I guess we just call cultural. The, um, the needy of your people may eat. Well, how does that work? And whatever they leave, the beast of the field may eat. You are to do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. So we're talking about farms, we're talking about orchards, we're talking about gardens, we're talking about all these agricultural pursuits. That seventh year, the land needs a rest. And it becomes even more productive for the, for the needy. This is what we're talking about. It actually helps to produce the abundance. And it's just, a, it's just an open field. There's still food there and the animals can go graze and the, and the, the, uh, the, the poor, I want to call them with biblical terms, the poor can go graze, okay? When we say don't feed the animals, you know what we mean by this, okay? 
there are procedures in place whereby they can feed themselves. And that's every year. Okay? But in the Sabbath year especially, the fields are wide open. The farmers aren't out there working it. The reapers aren't out there working It's not a productive uh, plot of, of, of land. It's just sitting there. So whatever you find there, go eat. Okay? And then on a weekly basis, six days you are to do your work, but on the seventh day you shall cease from labor so that your ox and your donkey may rest and the son of your female slave as well as your stranger may refresh themselves. This is going to be a cultural provision. Everything's closed. Okay? I mean, you go to Israel today, understand that the elevators are on automatic so because you, you, pushing a button would be breaking the Sabbath, right? So they just... They, they're programmed, they just run, and they stop on every floor, and the doors open, and the doors close, whether there's anybody on the elevator or not. And it's just they're constantly running so that you don't push a button and, and break the Sabbath. I think the modern day version is a little bit extreme, but that's just my view. All right. So the land is to be provided with a Sabbath year for its rest. For its rest and this value, and by the way, because they weren't following this practice for ages, part of what God was doing in the captivity was the providing the land, the Sabbath rest that it wasn't getting while Israel was in the land abusing it. While the Jewish people were there not observing the Sabbath, not giving the land the, the various rests. So the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, they were, the, they were taken into their captivity for this reason to give the land the rest that it uh, that God had designed for it. The weekly Sabbath encompassed a man's animals, slaves, and guests. You know, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. When in Israel, Sabbath. Okay? It's the Sabbath. It doesn't matter if you're not Jewish or not. If you're a stranger, if you're just a visitor, you're in Israel, this is the Sabbath. Okay? And if you're a slave, this is the Sabbath. The weekly Sabbath rest was for devotion to Yahweh and not for any false god. The worst thing in the world is to take the Lord's day and uh, find a different god that you're going to worship on that day. Okay, Concerning everything, and this is a dangerous thing to say. What are we now, one week out from the, the high holy day of the, of the, uh, the NFL uh, pantheon of, I mean it is. Anyway. It's the Lord's day. Concerning everything which I have said to you, be on your guard. Do not mention the name of other gods, nor let them be heard from your mouth. All right, then we get three annual feasts described in verses 14 through 19. We know about Passover because we had that in the Exodus. We know about unleavened bread. They got that also in the Exodus. But these other uh, uh, festivals, what are these? We have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of the Harvest, the Feast of the Ingatherings. Three times a year you shall celebrate a feast to me. These are mandatory. Mandatory holidays, holy days. You shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread. For seven days you are to eat unleavened bread as I commanded you. At the appointed time in the month of Beeb, for in it you came out of Egypt, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. So remember you have Passover, and then you have the seven days after Passover is the Feast of Unleavened Bread mandatory. You shall celebrate this. And it says, you shall appear before me. None shall appear before me empty-handed. Verse 16, also you shall observe the feast of the harvest of the first fruits of your labors from what you sow in the field. Also the feast of the ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in the fruit of your labors from the field. So the first fruits comes early, and then at the end, when it's all said and done. And, all, and why is it that so frequently in, we, in our concept of giving, it's we, we hold off until the end, when all is said and done, and we see what we made, and we see what's left over, and we figure out you know, what, uh, what, what we can afford to give to, to God after we've already you know, paid all of our expenses and whatnot. First fruits. And then at the end. Okay, both. All right. Three times a year all your males shall appear before the Lord God. Is that misogynistic? Are we uh, picking on the women? What are we doing? 
Why, why, uh, why are we excluding the women? What is the, uh, the nature of this? And it's curious, see, the, um, the patriarchal nature of the nation, of the priesthood, of, of the culture, okay? And honestly, I mean, if you know the difference between men and women and the, the spiritual sensitivities and whatnot, um, it's, you know, it's pretty straightforward. If the men are positive in doctrine, if the men are setting the example, if the men are leaders in their homes, leaders in their church, leaders in their um, spiritual priorities as unto the Lord, then uh, that makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? So three times a year all your males shall appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread, nor is the fat of my feast to remain overnight until morning. You shall bring the choice first fruits of your soil into the house of the Lord your God, and you are not to boil a young goat in the milk of its mother. <laughs> All right. I know, some of this stuff is lost to us. Some of this stuff, we're, uh, really? You know, you had me there until the, the goat and the mother's milk. What, what's, what's happening here? And the fat. Oh, there's a neat verse that says, All fat belongs to the Lord. That's going to come up in the. Uh, book of Leviticus, actually. And while I was looking at that, I think sometimes, I don't know, the, the tracking that Google and Facebook and these groups do is remarkable. But um, So I'm studying fat, I'm studying Levitical sacrifices and stuff, and um, stuff we'll get to in about two weeks from now. And, and then I start getting Facebook ads for these t-shirts. Somebody made up t-shirts that say, all fat belongs to the Lord. <laughs> and I kind of want one, actually. Because the, the model was this, you know, dad, dad bod kind of guy. And uh, it looks like a neat shirt. <coughs> All right, well, here's what we got. Three annual feasts that are described, Feast of Unleavened Bread. We've already studied that in conjunction with the Passover. So back to chapter 12 if you want to read more on that. The Feast of the Harvest for giving the first fruits also called the Feast of Weeks, and we'll have more on this coming up in chapter 34 and then in uh, Leviticus 23. Kind of helpful that you got Exodus 23, Leviticus 23, both chapters 23, both centering on these feasts, and that helps you remember it better. The Feast of the Ingathering at the conclusion of the agricultural season, also called the Feast of Tabernacles or Feast of Booths. That's the one that's going to be mandatory for the Gentiles in the millennium. For the Feast of Booths, they have to go. Every, every Gentile king has to go to Jerusalem and worship Jesus Christ for the Feast of Booths. Times for God's people to appear before Him. Appointed times at an appointed place. God's business making that, uh, making that known. The prohibition against cooking the young goat in the mother's milk is a warning against imitating the pagan practices of the Canaanites. And... Um, gets featured here. There's other things that get featured um, that are kind of lost to us. But yeah, the same thing about boiling a young goat in its mother's milk. Mentioned three times in the Bible, so it must have been important back then. I, I can testify I have never done this my entire life. I have never committed this sin. And uh Yeah. All right, the remainder of the chapter deals with Israel's pending military conquest. So verses 20 through 33, heads up. You got, you got some war in front of you. So here's the encouragement. Before you ever get to battle, you're going to win. That's going to be cool because Yahweh is going in front of you. That's the best part. So the remainder of this chapter dealt with Israel's pending military conquest of the promised land, accomplished under angelic escort. Behold, I'm going to send an angel before you to guard you along the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. You know, if there's any ambushes, if there's anything unexpected, you want your, the man that's on point, you want to, he's got to be on the alert, and uh, who better to go on point than the angel of the Lord? Be on your guard before him and obey his voice. Do not be rebellious towards him, for he will not pardon your transgression since... By the way, this is not just a, a flunky angel from nowhere. This is the angel of the Lord. My name is in him. But if you truly obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and I will completely destroy them. 
So these, uh, there's only six eights that are mentioned there. There's different listings that have different numbers, six or seven different numbers of the eights that they're going to conquer. So the journey and conquest will be accomplished under angelic escort. Remember, they don't know yet that they won't have Moses with them. Okay, They don't know that yet, but they're getting this encouragement here. This angel will proceed under divine warrant by Yahweh and is entitled to total obedience. Once in the land, Israel was warned against worshiping the false gods of Canaan. Yeah, you didn't just arrive there to adopt their practices. You arrived there to destroy them. Those gods have to go away like the gods of Egypt were defeated in the Exodus. So do not worship their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their deeds, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their sacred pillars in pieces. You shall serve Yahweh, your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will remove sickness from your midst. So there is food and water benefits, okay? I don't know if they had any boil water notices, but um, God's going to take care of that. Food, water, sickness. There shall be no miscarrying or barren in your land. You know, you can track the, the demographic statistics around the world as far as infant mortality and other uh, demographic uh, considerations. They were going to be tops of the charts because of Yahweh's blessings. I will fulfill the number of your days, no early mortality because of death or disease or malnutrition or other things that can uh, cause a, a demographic plunge. So yeah, warned against worshiping the false gods, devotion to the Lord resulting in physical health and agricultural prosperity, following at the heels of divine power. He, he gives some details about how the battle actually is going to work. I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion all the people among whom you come. So before you even engage in battle, before you're face to face with the enemy, they're already terrified, they're already confused, they're already dis, uh, dispirited. I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. I mean, they're just ready to flee as soon as they see you because the advanced party of the Lord is putting them into this mindset. I will send hornets ahead of you so that they will drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites before you. And he's also going to do it in a, in a, in a kind of in a paced way so it's not too fast. I will not drive them out before you in a single year that the land may not become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. Just a rapid depopulation too quickly is going to cause animal problems. I will drive them out before you little by little until you become fruitful and take possession of the land. I will fix your boundary from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, from the wilderness to the river Euphrates, for I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you will drive them out before you. Make no covenant with them or with their gods. They shall not live in your land. Okay. Now this is not a genocide. He's not ordering them to exterminate, but they can't stay. All right. So if they want to stay and fight, they're going to die. If they want to flee, they can save their lives. Okay. But they can't stay. They shall not live in your land because they will make you sin against me. If you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. The biggest problem with the Canaan was the Canaanites. Okay, get rid of the Canaanites and Canaan can now uh, have its rest. It can be blessed by having a covenant nation living on that soil. All right, which gets us now to chapter 24. Now we're only going to cover the first, uh, what are we covering here? The first 18 verses now of chapter 24. And we'll leave the rest of chapter 24 for tomorrow night. Oh, I got... I, no, it's the whole chapter, 1 through 18. Okay, never mind. Well, good, we've got eight minutes, and there is something critical here, so let's, uh, let's jump on it. So, we've had a whole bunch of laws, a whole bunch of rules, the Lord told to Moses, go tell the people, and, and the laws are being put into place, but now we actually have some narrative of something that's happening. So he says to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and you shall worship at a distance. Okay? Because Nadab and Abihu, they're not dead yet. We're, you're, we gotta get, can't get ahead of ourselves here on this. They're still the oldest two sons of, of Aaron. 
They're the ones that are right behind him in the line of succession. All right? And 70 of the elders of Israel, you shall worship at a distance. Moses alone, however, shall come near to the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people come up with them. So we start, we have an invitation here with a graded proximity. The Lord invites Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and 70 elders to approach closer than the people can get, but not as close as Moses can get. Got that? All right. So Moses descends, he related the the book of the covenant to the nation of Israel and supervised a national offering to the Lord. So Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord, basically what we just read in chapters 20 through 23, and all the ordinances, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has spoken we will do. It's the same enthusiasm, the same uh, excitement, the same agreement, the same insanity that we saw in chapter 19, okay? Because they can't possibly do this. It is a, it is a system of works, it is a conditional covenant, and they are going to break it sooner than anything. But they say, yep, yeah, we're good with that, we'll do all that. So Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. This is what God says happened. If the liberals tell you that Moses was illiterate, the liberals are liars, okay? Moses was very literate, educated in all the learnings of the Egyptians, He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with the twelve pillars for the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the sons of Israel and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. Now pay attention, because animals are dying here. Blood is, is being shed. These sacrifices are being accomplished, but the shedding of blood does not finish the work. The shedding of blood only makes the work possible for the blood to be applied, right? You can't apply the blood if it's not shed. But shedding the blood does not apply the blood. So, notice there's the sacrifice. Then, Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. We got that? Half of the blood in basins, set aside half of the blood on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, again, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. We will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people. Notice the blood now is getting applied. And said, behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. This is so significant because this is what Jesus quotes when he gives communion in the, in the upper room on the night in which he's betrayed. When he talks about this is my body which is given for you and this is my blood, right? He's talking about this is my blood, the blood of the covenant. And notice as he gives that communion ritual, as he gives that communion ritual and teaches the doctrine, he's teaching that the, the blood is being shed. But when is the blood being applied? Has Israel ever had that blood applied to them? No, not to this day. Even into the tribulation it will not yet be applied. Even until Armageddon it will not yet be applied. They actually, the Jewish people, have to look upon Him whom they pierced. They have to call upon the Christ that they crucified to return and to save them. Only then will the blood of the covenant be applied. Only then will it be sprinkled on the Jewish people for the new covenant for the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. So paying attention to this sacrifice here is so vital. And then Moses went up with Aaron, with Nadab, Abihu, 70 elders. They saw the God of Israel and under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. And I don't know what this you know, dimensional transport was as they got further up the mountain. Did they, they entered into the throne room of God? What happened here? Or is this just a transfiguration event kind of a thing? Time travel or dimensional travel. Whatever the case may be, the invited dinner party dined with the Lord Jesus Christ in a pre-incarnation Christophany. And uh, he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel. And they saw God and they ate and drank. And they saw God. How does that not violate no man can see God and live? How does that not violate no one has seen God at any time? 
Because the references that no one has seen God apply to the Father, and the references for seeing God apply to the Son. If you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father. Okay? That's why the Word became flesh. That's why He is the image of the invisible God. That's why He's the radiance of the Father's glory. Anybody that's been seen is God the Son. Okay? From the burning bush to the cloud to the pillar of fire to this episode to every other Christophany of the Old Testament, it is God the Son in a pre-incarnation Christophany. So Moses is then instructed to return to the mountaintop and receive the remainder of the law. He's done the easy part. Now he's got to go up for 40 days and get the rest of it. He's got to go up and get uh, Exodus or Leviticus and Numbers and he's got to get the, the you know, be up, forget the Ten Commandments. He's got 613 of them he's got to go get. Okay, The totality of the law. Joshua is permitted to go with him as his personal assistant. Aaron and Hur were delegated to supervise Israel in Moses' absence. So anytime you know, you're going to be out of the pulpit, you've got to arrange your pulpit supply. You want to make sure that you have reliable people. And then, of course, sadly, we know Aaron's going to get involved in the, the golden calf and then we're going to have trouble coming up. But Moses arose with Joshua, his servant. Last time we saw Joshua, he was fighting a battle against Amalek. But he's a servant, we're told. He actually had been his servant from his youth. And Moses went up to the mountain of God. But to the elders he said, wait here until we return to you. Behold, Aaron and her are with you. Whoever has a legal matter, let him approach them. Remember, Aaron and her were the ones holding up his arms so that Joshua could fight the battle. So Moses went up to the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain and the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it for six days. On the seventh day, he called to Moses from the midst of the cloud. Why did it take so long? You know, if he didn't wait till the seventh day to start talking, Moses could have been there, you know, shorter than he didn't have to stay 40 days. <laughs> All right. Moses entered within the cloud of God's glory for 40 days and 40 nights. The uh, Israelites stood at a distance in fear. Hmm. To the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. You can imagine, they're looking up there at the top of the mountain and all this smoke and all this flame. And you've got to think, how does Moses live through that? What's going on up there? Moses entered the midst of the cloud as he went up to the mountain. Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And I, I've probably put this in here too many times, but I, I like to contrast this with, with us in Hebrews 12. We are not at this mountain. We never have been, never will be. Okay, we're not. We come to the real Mount Zion. We come to the heavenly Mount Zion. We have a kingdom which cannot be shaken. Our God is a consuming fire. All right. Actually, that's a different passage than the one I had read earlier. Cool. I outsmarted myself put variety in my Hebrews references there. The fact is though, Mount Sinai, the more we study it, the more we learn about it, the more we appreciate Mosaic law, I think the appreciation only is magnified by the fact that we're not under it, that we have the freedom and grace, that we're in Christ, that what's old and obsolete is ready to disappear and we are in Christ already functioning, not in the shadows, but in the reality, in the substance. Biblical Christianity is a, is a walk of substance not shadows. All right. Well, we will come back. Tomorrow is day 42, and uh, Lord willing, rapture pending, we'll, uh, we'll continue on in, in our Exodus journey. Thank you, Father, for tonight. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for your faithfulness. We uh, ask for your hand of blessing upon us, Father. We know it. this is a, a, a rapid study. This is so fast, and we want to slow down. We want to take rabbit trails. We want to get depth. We can't get depth, Father. We're this is a format for, for height, for width, for big picture. And uh, I just pray that you would bless our reading, bless our memory, help us to learn what you would have for us to learn. And then help us to make careful note of those, uh, those subjects, those doctrines, those concepts. Uh, by the time we finish this year, we're going to have about a thousand things or more that we want to go back to in, in, in a deeper way, Father. And uh, there's just so much that you're highlighting for us that uh, Father, we want to know better. We want to know more. We want, we want, uh, and we can't get it all overnight. But uh, you leave us here, Father. We're going to keep growing. We're going to keep learning. 
And I thank you for all these marvelous blessings. In the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.